If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. On the following episode of The Transition, I'm joined by Bruce Cleveland, a world-renowned venture capitalist, founding partner of Wildcat Venture Partners, and author of the highly acclaimed book, Traversing the Traction Gap, where he shares the framework developed by the Wildcat team that helps entrepreneurs navigate the critical go-to-market period between initial product release and reaching minimum viable traction. Bruce was one of the first people to introduce me to the concept of category design or what he describes as market engineering. One of the most common reasons startups or small businesses fail is due to no market need. Rather than merely chasing the notorious product market fit, Bruce teaches entrepreneurs how to literally create a new market category and position their product or service as the category king. I've gone through this process myself, designing dog whistle branding for my company, Ironbound Media. And at some point, I hope to do a workshop for the transition audience on how to design and create a new market category. But first, I'd figure I'd get Bruce on the show to introduce the concept. In addition to learning about category design though, you'll get an insight into the mind of a venture capitalist and the considerations you need to know if you plan on raising venture capital and the road ahead for a high growth startup. What I appreciate most though about this interview is Bruce's honesty about how hard it is to build a successful startup, despite his vast experience working and investing in them. This is one of the many reasons I do this show, giving you all an insight into realities we face as entrepreneurs. Before you hear from Boos and I, make sure you subscribe to the Transition Newsletter at the link in the show notes. I send out a newsletter at least once a week, and if there's a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, feel free to shoot me an email at mike.stedman at bunkerlabs.org. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Bruce, welcome to The Bunker. Such an honor and privilege to have you here. I'm so excited. I'm like a little kid. I usually have this book up on my shelf, but I took it down today for our interview. So uh, welcome to the, the transition. Great. Thanks for having me. Bruce, so one thing I think we could start with is uh, for those that are unaware of who you are, if you wouldn't mind just briefly introducing yourself. Um, I had a chance to meet you in person in uh, 2018 when you were actually releasing the book. And so, again, I think it's going to be a wealth of knowledge for our listeners today. Sure. Um, so I actually um, I started my college career. I, I went to West Point. I, I left early um, when I realized that um, that I wanted to do something different. I had been exposed to computer science at the academy, and that wasn't a thing back. I was class of 80, so that was 1976. It wasn't a thing back then. Um, I made a decision um, to go to uh, a standard college and uh, and go through the the process of learning computer science etc um, did that and ended up my um, 
my first five years I worked for, I, I did networking and network engineering for AT&T, but then I, I joined a really tiny startup called Oracle. There, might, there probably were less than a hundred people in it. And um, it had been around for just a few years. And really that was, um, I think, a profound introduction because those relationships have um, persisted for the last 42 years of, of uh, my work career. So I, I, worked for, I went to work at Oracle for a guy named Tom Siebel and uh, did a number of things for him. I worked there for five years, ended up running the, um, the Unix division. Back then they were, they were organized by operating systems. They, they're not that way any longer. And um, from there I, I went off um, after five years, I went to Apple and ran an a division of engineering there for about five or six years. And then Tom Siebel called me up and said, I have this great idea about a company. It, it seems to be doing well. And uh, I joined about the same size at at, uh, at Siebel Systems as I joined when uh, as when I joined with Oracle, and um, there I became I held a number of different roles over the course of a decade. I was the head of marketing, head of um, uh, the SaaS division we called it on demand back then, and head of alliances. Did that? We sold the company to Oracle in 2006, and I decided I'd try my hat at um, at venture investing, strange twist of fate in the valley. The little tiny company, the little tiny firm I joined, Interwest Partners, uh, was located in the same two small little offices uh, that were that was Oracle back when I joined. So on 2710 Sand Hill Road. So it's kind of interesting story there. Um, I ended up deciding that I would hang my hat on the um, notion of software as a service. It wasn't a, a well-known thing then. Salesforce was just coming into its own with the other companies. Uh, Bessemer was known for a bunch of uh, metrics they had produced, but it really wasn't uh, the kind of pervasive business model that we see today. And, uh, and so I made a decision to take on a couple of interesting ideas that we had on the drawing board when I was running products for Siebel Systems. One of those was uh, a marketing automation product. And I thought that it had been uh, poorly done in the past and that we could do something better. I found a, a couple of people, um, three specifically, Phil Fernandez, John Miller, and Dave Morandi, who came up with an idea that became Marketo. Um, when I invested, uh, it, there was no code or customers, or there might've been a dog or two, I have no idea. But, but um, that went on to be a, a fairly successful investment. And um, so I did some other things like that. I did a company called Workday, which I think people have heard of. Um, others, uh, Velocity was just acquired by Salesforce recently, uh, C3. AI, where um, where I've spent the last couple of years as the chief marketing officer, and then um, also a company called Doximity, which had an IPO here a few months ago, and um, has generated uh, a, a very very large return for uh, for the firm, and has become quite a substantial uh, company. It's basically LinkedIn for physicians. So um, did that, and then a, a couple of years ago, I decided that I wanted to end my career the way it began, and that was uh, with Tom. And so I, I joined Tom Siebel and, uh, at C3AI as the chief marketing officer. And um, I just concluded that assignment here on Monday, uh, retiring from the, the tech industry, at least formally re you know, retiring. And uh, I'll think of something else I'll do. Probably nothing as intense as it's been for the last couple of years. And one of the really cool things about that, that uh, two-year period was Tom asked me to engineer a new market, uh, a market called enterprise AI. 
So I took a book that I had written, the book that you showed here, which is Traversing the Traction Gap, which has a set of principles that we can talk about um, in it. And I've actually applied for the last two years those principles I wrote about. And um, we have been able to successfully create a new category called Enterprise AI. We have the leadership position for the most part. It's kind of a, a cyber warfare that goes on behind the scenes. But for the most part, we own the snippet. Uh, if you type in Enterprise AI, I think you'll see that we're up there number one or number two. And we engineered all of that from the very get-go. So um, it's been a, a four decades and a little bit more. Uh, uh, very exciting stuff. Learned a lot from some very, very smart people, uh, both on the operating side and the investing side. And uh, I find myself here today um, unemployed, uh, happily, uh, and uh, excited about kind of what I'm going to do next. So that's, uh, that's me. That's what I've done. And um, I, this is something I really enjoy. I do enjoy working with the vets. Um, spent quite a bit of time. Hired a lot of vets um, at, um, at Siebel Systems. So it's, uh, it's important to me. It's important to give back. It's, and I think doing these kinds of things is my way of, of doing that. Well, I'm again, as a super fan, I'm really love this book, right? It's one of those books where I'm like, I really, I keep, it's like a textbook, you know, you got to keep going back to it and everything. Um, but one of the things I want to ask you too is, you know, what does it feel like on a personal level, being at the highest level of, you know, technology and venture investing, being on that side of it, you know, so many people on the outside looking in, but being in there real early, like you said, with guys like Tom Siebel and being part of that ecosystem and building it out. You know, how does that make you feel? Well, I think, you know, the, winning is, is, a, um, is a good feeling. Um, to get the win, it may not feel as great, right? I think a lot of people, I think it's like we watch the different sport, our sports teams, and they, somebody goes on to win the Super Bowl. What you don't see is the, the pain and agony and planning and all the sausage making that goes on to uh, to make that happen it doesn't just it doesn't just happen and i would argue it's the same uh in these high tech companies the ones that you see winning it's a high stakes game the people are pros at what they do it's uh it's an always on sport so it's it can be somewhat debilitating because the uh the amount of time and energy and effort that you have to put into it to remain uh, a category leader or to remain number one in the market. It, it takes an extraordinary amount of effort. And um, I'm not sure if people realize quite how much it, just, it all looks glamorous. It all looks great. Uh, but when you're really, when you're doing it, it is, um, it's a significant amount of, of uh, a physical effort and a significant amount of mental effort to, uh, to participate at and, and, uh, and win in, in these, um, in these markets that we participate. I appreciate you sharing that. And you know, one of our themes here on the transition is taking off our armor, because like you said, it looks all successful on LinkedIn, people raising a bunch of money, people posting on, you know, Instagram, but the reality of the day to day, the responsibility of managing other people's money, the responsibility of succeeding, one of the most riskiest asset classes uh, known to ban. Um, it is not all sunshine and rainbows. And so, you know, as somebody in the space, I would love for you to take off your armor for our listeners and let us know, you know, what something you're struggling with, either as an investor, new retiree, entrepreneur, whatever you feel like sharing for our audience. Yeah, well, actually, I'll give you um, the, the most recent experience as the chief marketing officer for C3AI. Um, 
you know, we, we went through this pandemic and, and we're doing a lot of really challenging things. Um, I, the way we characterize it is we say um, solving the world's um, previously unsolvable problems. Um, that's kind of shorthand for uh, <laughs> for taking on some significant um, business issues um, and uh, and showing companies how to do it and, and not not necessarily knowing what needs to be done up front, but learning along the way. Um, well, to do that, we feel that it's critically important that everybody is in the office. And so we have been a, a not work from home company um, since it was legally um, legally allowed. Well, in this industry right now, a lot of companies are offering uh, work from home. I like to say, well, we offer work from home too, and that's usually nights and weekends. So the, uh, but the, the truth is you're competing against these other companies where people feel like they can get, um, they, they can get babysitters or they, or they don't need them because they can stay home, et cetera. And we simply can't offer that because the kinds of things that we are doing, whether we're solving any money laundering problems, um, working with um, missile defense agency on, on missile planning, or we're working with, um, with, with Philips to create ventilators or mat. All these things are critically important and require us to be able to work together collectively um, to solve these, these really challenging problems that we've been able to, to solve. So I have to go compete, or I had to until Monday when I officially retired. Um, I had to go compete to try to hire people who are given the opportunity to work in these other more flexible uh, work arrangements. And we simply can't offer that. So the result though, is that, um, one, we were very shorthanded from the standpoint of the company is scaling rapidly and marketing a, is a, um, uh, is a, as a group that needs to scale with it. And so we were finding ourselves uh, working very, very long hours, weekends, nights, etc., because we couldn't find more people who were willing to show up Monday through Friday at the office. So, and I think that problem persists. So, um, and it's especially, dis it's, it's especially difficult for marketing because creatives, uh, writing things, those, those types of things can be done in other places. It's just that we can't do it at our, at our, at our company. So I have found that probably for me is the, the most difficult thing of my, for, for me, the last uh, six to months to, to a year has been trying to find people um, of the highest caliber willing to to come into the office and work. Um, we're all fully vaccinated, and so it's, it's safe. But the um, but the net is is that there's a lot of other options. So yeah, that's it's been hard because you it puts a big burden on the people who are in the office. We have to do we're doing two or three x the, the workload. That we should that we should be doing if I were able to hire people into the into uh, into the group. Um, so that's a fresh wound that I can that I can point to, and um, and uh, and you know it just is what it is. So the we dealt with it. I appreciate you sharing. You know, people are calling this the Great Resignation. It's the battle for talent, and like you said, these high performers they have options. Mm. So you know, how do you get people with options to? to come in and be around the team. And I think it's, you know, it's going to be a big on culture. You know, that's why you see so many of these companies investing in community building and investing in culture. 
Um, and I was, as myself, as an entrepreneur, you know, I come to my podcast studio every day. <laughs> First thing in the morning, I grab a cup of coffee and I'm in here and I just feel more productive, you know, but I know for a lot of people, um, that's not necessarily the case. Some of them want to work from home. They got all these other issues. So it is a real challenge. And, you know, if you're struggling with it, you can only imagine what uh, some of these smaller businesses or, you know, micropreneurs, early stage startups are, are dealing with trying to compete for talent. Yeah, uh, it, it's definitely an issue. Definitely a problem. So one of the things I want to jump right into is this idea of a market first approach. Now, when I got this book, you signed it and you said, uh, Mike Stedman, Ironbound Boxing, may you become a successful market engineer. And at the time, it was over my head because my first business was an on-site boxing class. I have a nonprofit, obviously, Ironbound Boxing, but I was teaching boxing classes to companies on-site in the New York City metro area. And to be honest, until I shut that business down, it was an uphill battle for sales. You know, a couple of reasons. One, there wasn't a real hard demand for it, if I'm being honest. You know, I also wasn't obsessed with the problem. I was obsessed with funding kids in the inner city to train for free, but I wasn't exactly sold on, hey, you corporate guy, you need to have boxing to improve your life. And I was always going up against it. So then I started getting these indie hacker communities and started learning about micropreneurs who are funding businesses. And they talk about, you've got to go into it with a market first approach. Where are people already spending money? You know, where's the opportunity at? And then how do you carve out your own niche, your own category, right? To really own and dominate that category. And it was just been like this giant epiphany. And one of the things that me and you were talking about, you know, in preview is why is this not getting taught more? You know, I came into it with the product market, you know, find product market fit, or, you know, you come up with this great solution. But it's really about, do you have a market for your product or service? And how are you dominating that market? How are you carving out that market? How are you evangelizing that market for your perfect customer? No, you're exactly right. Um, the um, Doing the, the due diligence for the book, doing all the interviews, you know, do dozens and dozens of them, speaking with people who've been successful, who failed, who've both been successful and failed, and then been successful. So a lot of different, a lot of different people, a lot of different experiences to get the, um, to kind of get to the meat of the, the, the book, you know, so that way it was, uh, something that was useful and prescriptive for people that they could operate against. So this, this concept one, the, and I think this is a fairly well known statistic now, which is that the number one reason for, for a startup failure, by the way, it's the same for a new product introduction. So if you're a part of a large company and you're introducing a new product, um, for all intents and purposes, you're a startup. So these principles apply to you too. Um, the, the number one reason for product failure or startup failure is no market need. And you would be surprised, maybe you wouldn't be, but I, I, I had uh, taken it for granted that people would do the research first to figure out whether there was truly a market for um, for what they wanted to build and deliver, the um, that kind of gave me the epiphany through the book, which was to to invert that product market fit to say no without a, without a market, there's no need for your product. So think about market product fit. Get a market first attitude, which is, is there really a market for for you? And and pick at 
I call it scab picking, but pick at the scabs of this. Go, is this really, is it really going to work? Is it, is it a painful enough thing, whether it's a consumer thing or a business thing, that people would buy it, people would use it um, because it was mission critical? And if it's not, then it's just something that's nice to have. And those are the things that kind of get thrown away. I think right now, what we all are beginning to realize is that we've had a decade or more of, you know, a pretty robust economy. And uh, that stuff comes, it doesn't last forever, right? We go through these cycles. A lot of people currently in business have not seen or weren't in, um, weren't in the, um, they were still in school and didn't, and didn't go through uh, the, the last bust. So my view is that uh, people aren't, they're, they're not doing the work. They're not doing enough homework up front to convince themselves and ergo investors that they've done the qualitative and quantitative assessments to show there really is a, a true market uh, need for what it is that you envision. And, um, and this is why I think this is the root cause issue of most, um, of most startup failures, the lack of that effort. And uh, I talk about different ways of describing it, you know, in the book, you know, I talk about this thing called slide 29. Um, for those who feel like reading the book, it'll become apparent what, what that is. But um, uh, I feel that a lot of people, they just they just want to barrel through this and say, no, I've got the right idea. It's going to work. And don't really go and listen to the, to the feedback from, um, from people uh, who they envision would use the product. Uh, they don't listen. Um, they're just, their bias kind of pushes all of that aside and um, I think that's what that's what gets us into trouble. That's what gets startups into trouble. So um, I know you know it kind of takes a stubborn person to do these things, right? You need it takes a lot of fortitude to be an entrepreneur, um, to start a business and to to make it work. You you have to get past naysayers, but you also have to be truthful to yourself. And being truthful to yourself is listening to the feedback, listening to the quantitative and qualitative evidence that's being presented to you and do the work to, to, to showcase that actually there is some, there's, there's a there there for what you're doing. So this market first is an attitude. It's a, it's a, um, it's a data driven decision-making attitude. I'm going to use data. I'm going to go out proactively talk to people, talk to companies, and I'm going to run my hypotheses against, against those and, and come back and prove, you know, if you've had stats, uh, you know, you'd be familiar with these p-values, you know, that, that you've, um, you've got to have a, a probability value that suggests that, um, that what your hypothesis is, is actually true. Um, or not true. So I, I think we need more of that. And unfortunately, I've done this uh, in, for many presentations that I've given at many different locations. I always ask, I said, so how many of you have a bachelor's or a master's degree in product management? And now Carnegie Mellon now has a, a, a nice program for this, but for the most part, nobody has it. People, people learn to be product managers through myth and lore and, you know, they talk to other people, but they, they didn't really study that. There's no, it's not like, um, if you're a mason, or if you are, uh, if you're a, a carpenter, or you're you're an electrician, you have a journeyman who you're paired with as an apprentice, and they pass down things to you so you don't kill yourself, and so you learn things um, that they've learned and have been passed down for the ages. We don't really have that uh, in certainly not in technology, 
and it, you're just kind of forced, you're thrown into the big end of the pool, you try to swim, and there's really nobody there to, to, to help you. So the purpose of, the reason I wrote this book was to provide a prescriptive guide for people to use uh, to assess whether there really is market need. There is a market and there really is a market need. And that market need is, is, a, um, is far more of a must have than, than it is a, a nice to have. So that's kind of a you know, short monologue on, on what this market first idea is. And for our listeners, slide 29 is basically where you're doing your pitch and then you give everything and you say, we're going to go from, you know, a million dollars of revenue to a $9 billion exit. And there's no really description of like how. And one of the things that I'm taking on my back is really showing veterans how to execute a successful go to market strategy. And what I really like about what you do in Traction Gap, I mean, in Traversing the Traction Gap is you lay out a roadmap for like, this is how you actually go about doing it. So I would love for you to kind of expand upon, you know, what that looks like to, to execute the traction uh, gap framework. Yeah. So um, what I did was I, I being in venture for 15 years, um, I had an opportunity to watch a lot of companies present and what it, um, what really bothered me was the number of people who would come in and, and speak, Everybody would say, thanks for coming in, the, par the partners, and they would leave, the, the entrepreneur would leave, and everybody would look at each other and go, that's never going to get any capital, it's not going to work. Um, almost universally, it was true, it didn't, there were a few that actually went on to work quite successfully. I can think of um, Box, for example, with Aaron Levy, I remember our team going, oh, that's never going to work with some 22-year-old, and uh, Aaron, it worked, <laughs> it worked well. So, um, but the truth of the matter is, there, there's um, you need you need some kind of organizational construct, some kind of taxonomy that you can use to calibrate where you are and what you need to do. And I said, okay, I don't have the, I don't necessarily have the the perfect mechanism for this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna create one. And I began with something that everybody is now is familiar with this thing called a minimum viable product that uh, Steve Blank and and others have propagated. Um, in Eric Reese and others. So this concept is, hey, what's the least amount of product that I can build that I can actually start selling? That's kind of, it varies in how people look at it, but it's a, it's a concept that has been understood. So I decided to build a framework that used that concept of a, of a minimum viable product and put in place um, a continuum from ideation, from when you have an idea to when you're now actually being successful and scaling. And so there's three phases to, to this, um, this continuum. The first is the go to product phase. That's where I got to build this product. The second is the go to market phase where I have to take it into the market and sell it. And then the third phase is the go to scale phase. That is now I'm going to pour a lot of fuel into this because we have market product fit. Um, we've built the product successfully, we've sold it successfully, we've hired successfully, and we have the systems to scale. So I took this, um, this notion, these three phases that a company has to go through, I use minimum viable product on it, um, and I introduced several other what I call value inflection points. These are points in time that you, you reach that you have decreased the amount of risk uh, in the company uh, successfully that will convince uh, some investors to then give you more capital to reach the next value inflection point. So what are those? Well, you start off with your idea, 
you then have to reach something called a minimum viable category. Uh, and I talk a lot about it in the book, well, what is that, right? So there's a lot of, that would take another couple of hours to go through, but there's a notion of what is the category that you're creating? You try to compete in somebody else's category, they've defined the rules. You will get crushed if you do that. You wanna change the category. You can redefine an existing category or build a new category, but either way you must um, create a minimum viable category concept. Then you go on, okay, great. So you, you might have some capital um, that you've been able to secure, maybe a seed round, or you put your own money in or whatever it is. And you, um, you have convinced yourself by doing a lot of research that you should build a product with certain characteristics. And so you reach this point called initial product release. It's something. It may not be a minimum viable ca uh, product, but it's, it's a product that somewhat works. And you can begin to bounce that off of different people. Then you reach minimum viable, um, this, this notion of, of minimal viable product. And, um, and, uh, and then I introduced two more concepts, which is minimum viable repeatability, where I built the product multiple times, sold it, hired people. So I'm beginning to move from being a, a PowerPoint company to a spreadsheet company, where there's some real numbers that some, an investor can look at. And by the way, most of the investors uh, in the venture world don't want to invest prior to that notion of minimum viable repeatability. Um, they wait for the wipeouts to occur and the, and the, the smart, the actual, the, the best brands, uh, the brands like Andreessen, like Sequoia, like Kleiner, like Excel, et cetera. Um, those brands, they're, they're powerful enough. They can wait until they can see some notion of traction and then compete and win the deal. A lot of other venture firms don't have that kind of cachet with entrepreneurs. So they have to, they have to invest earlier. So they have higher, a higher number of wipeouts in terms of the, of uh, their portfolio. So the, um, uh, that kind of brings us to the final value inflection point for the scope of the book, which is called minimum viable traction. And that's kind of where we have to start focusing on, on really scaling the company. The other element to this traction gap framework and these no and this concept is this notion of that there's four pillars. There's four things that exist from the from ideation into perpetuity, and that is product, revenue, team, and systems. It's just that at every moment, every value inflection point, a different one of those pillars comes to the fore, becomes important. Very beginning, it's all about the team. Um, over then it becomes all about the product. Then it becomes all about the the uh, the revenue, and then finally systems comes into the fore. They're all present. They're all important. They're all things you're doing, but you are changing the priority as you move across. So the book itself describes this in pretty intimate detail. There's um, there's a lot of if you if you had the luxury of of an infinite amount of time. Um, which you do not, you perhaps you wouldn't have to pay as close attention to all of this. But the truth is, you go, the second you declare minimum that you have a minimum viable product, you're on the clock, and you have to achieve cer a certain amount of revenue within a certain amount of time, um, or the venture community will lose interest in, and and you will not get an investment. You might find other sources of of capital, but you won't you won't get it from the the better investors. So the purpose of the book was to give every entrepreneur, and by the way, investors as well, a way to a yardstick. Like where are we? How where where are we now? What do we need to get to? And the the one of the more important uh, lessons that out of the as I did the research to do the book and write it um, that I found was. If you um, you may be able to raise capital wherever you are, or at whatever point you are, um, but if you don't reach that next value inflection point on the capital that you just raised, 
it is unlikely that you will raise any more capital and you'll become one of that 85 to 90% failure rate that, that we talk about. So that's the purpose. That's It's meant to be give um, uh, guardrails, guideposts, um, you are here, what should I do next? And, and, and a vernacular. One of the things I found really helpful with working with entrepreneurs and other investors by having this traction gap framework and having all of the time, uh, revenue, uh, gross margin, everything kind of um, delineated, you can have uh, a much more productive conversation with the team that you're working with. And um, some of the most enjoyable things that I that I did when um, with my venture firm was we would bring a, a team and we'd have them take a diagnostic. We built a traction gap uh, diagnostic. Each team member took the test, filled out the information, and then it would generate a heat map. We would find out the most important thing was what is engineering? Where do they think we are versus where does the sales team think we are versus marketing? And those conversations allowed us to gain alignment and the vernacular, the terminology we used allowed us to communicate much more effectively than a lot of hand waving about we should do this and we should do that, et cetera. This t removes all of that out of the equation and it gives an opportunity for us to have a conversation without me poking you in the chest um, and making you feel bad uh, or, or more importantly, it's not just feel bad, it's uh, making you, um, me using my opinion to say you should be doing something versus versus using data to say hey we should be doing something so that's really what it is it's a you know it's a, a language a way to to communicate with each other um, and apparently it seems to be working has there been any pushback from the entrepreneurs is it a hard learning curve for them to start to think of you know launching a, a, a tech business and sticking to those kind of terms um that's one of the things that I was really proud of. I kept it simple. You know, this isn't, you know, Michael Porter is a very famous professor at Harvard Business School, wrote a lot of books. Um, his his books are, are pretty complicated. And I didn't want, we don't have time for that. You know, we this needs to be a, a practical guide. Something, you know, this you learn war theory and then you go out in the field and, you know, <laughs> things, things are yeah. immediately different. So um, this, I have found that within a half an hour, every entrepreneur I've worked with grocks this. It doesn't take me long to explain it, um, and uh, and and when you see it visually, it makes it makes sense. So um, I've had no trouble uh, getting people to when I work with them to adopt this. We did get a lot of pushback from limited partners who who came back and said, "Those are the people who invest in the venture capital firms." who said, why are, you know, you're trying to shove this down their throat. Other venture firms don't, you know, why would they use this? And, um, and my answer was, well, because one, it works. And number two, it's easy to understand. And number three, I'm not, I'm not charging people, you know, this is, I'm not making money off of um, forcing them to, to use this. They're going to use it if it's useful. And, um, and I, without, without exception, every company that I've worked with that I invested in um, after writing it and, and putting it together, I think have adopted it fairly regularly. Did the, I don't think the rest of the venture capital world has necessarily adopted it, um, you know, for whatever reasons. I don't, I don't care. Um, I, I, what I care about is making the entrepreneurs successful. So um, the, the other part that I, that I found out of is that, and you'll realize this, is that 
you know, most venture capitalists have never personally built a company. Um, right. Many of them have gone to really good schools. They're very smart people. Um, but most of them have participated vicariously. You know, they said, well, I was part of X company, whatever. No, you weren't. You, you went to a board meeting. You certainly were smart enough. You knew maybe you went to business school with the entrepreneur that you invested in. But you didn't personally build that company. You didn't you didn't code. You didn't do the marketing. You didn't sell. So d- don't take credit for what you didn't do. And, um, you know, I had to learn early on. To, uh, I, I offended a couple of, of entrepreneurs um, because the I had to learn to stop being an operating guy and to be an investor and realize I'm on the sidelines. I'm not really doing this. And I have to, you know, I can suggest things, things that have worked for me, um, but I need to remove myself from that. Um, I have found I have not had to, with this book and with these concepts, I haven't had to push anybody to adopt it. There's been people who said, well, you know, we don't really want to do it that way. And I go, well, then I'm not investing in you because this is how I, this is how I do my investments and it's how we get the most value out of the, um, out of the conversations, you know? And so they, they didn't take money from, from me and, um, and that's fine. You know, it's, um, different strokes or different folks. What it really comes down is pattern rec- pattern recognition for you and your firm because you guys have seen this play out over and over the timelines and everything and so you know you condensed it in a in a framework that makes sense and uh, I will tell you as somebody that's involved in the indie pr- community those people that choose to not take venture capital I feel like they've taken a similar version of the traction uh, framework traction gap framework and they're applying it you know I hear their terms their minimum uh, viable repeatability is that 10 to 30K a month in recurring revenue. Because for them, that lets them quit their full-time job, you know, and focus on that. Mm-hmm. And they're looking and they're saying, hey, if this thing isn't taken off within two years or whatever, we got to shut it down. You know, so a lot of people are already applying it. The challenge is kind of introducing this language so it becomes more commonplace. Now, with the time we have left, one of the things I do want to pick your brain on is, uh, I know you hinted at it, but this category design, this market engineering, it really is a game changer. And for our listeners, right, if you're a small business, that really comes down to niching down, you know? And what you're seeing the indie community do is they're finding opportunities in larger markets and carving out their own little niche. You know, Christopher Lockhead calls it demanding, <laughs> damning the demand gen, you know? So building software products for a small segment of that market and really owning it. But in the book, this is probably one of the more comprehensive books I've read, and I've probably read four or five on them, on market engineering, category design. So I would love for you to kind of break that down for our listeners. Sure. Um, and feel free to use me as an example of what I was showing you beforehand, if it's easier. Yeah, sure. So so um, actually, this term, market engineering, uh, came about because I was walking with my daughter, who is... Um, She's she's a, a senior VP of marketing. And um, and so I like to bounce ideas off of her. And I was, you know, I was in the middle of writing the book. And I said, you know, the, the epiphany I had over the years was that every company is is um, really good at building these products. But not every company is really good at things like storytelling, thought leadership, uh, category, create category design, uh, messaging, positioning. I said these are really the five tenants that I found that differentiate the winners from the losers. I said, I need a term for this because I, I need a way to quickly um, label it that people can grok. 
And I said, you know, I, I rephrase, I just said, I said, lots of companies, almost every company I've ever been involved in is really good at product engineering. But what they don't know how to do is how to engineer a market. And that's what I thought. That's it. Market engineering. So market engineering are those five elements, the ability to tell a compelling story about who you are, what you do and why a company would want to work with you. The thought leadership, introducing provocative new thinking, a new way to attack a problem, solve a problem, make people want to work with you. Um, the third piece, which is this category design, which is, OK, so what are the things that the, Chris would call it the frotos, the from to a world like this to a world like that? What are the attributes of the world as it currently exists? And then with your product or service, what will the world look like afterwards? Um, spending a lot of thought on that. And then messaging and positioning. What are the words that you are going to use that, you know, one of the problems, you can't take all of your fancy thought leadership words and put that on your website and expect people to come because they're not searching for those terms yet. They're only when those terms become commonplace that you can use them. You can salt and pepper your spreadsheet, your uh, website with them, but you have to use uh, language that people already know. And so the, um, the, uh, the what I always tell people is don't conflate um, giving a, uh, a uh, product pitch with giving a, um, a keynote at a, at a conference. At a keynote or at a conference, people are there to learn, not buy. And on your website or in your presentations, they're there to buy, not necessarily learn. So you have to keep those things separate. So what I said was these five tenets um, are the principal um, at capabilities that entrepreneurs need to learn. If they're not already good at it, they need to find somebody who can help them be good at it and spend time and effort. As much energy as you spend on your product, you should spend on this because I assume that if you went to a good school and you learn how to code well and you surround yourself with a couple of people who could code, if you're in the software industry, um, this applies to every industry, it's not just software, um, you surround yourself with good people, um, but you have to learn how to become a great market engineer. You have to tell, I mean, think about the people who I think are phenomenal, uh, Steve Jobs, um, Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, Tom Siebel. These are people who make us think different. You know, they're people who introduced us to new ideas and new concepts that we hadn't really thought about before. And then they built a product that kind of built that, that led into that. So, um, if you're if you're thinking about building, it doesn't matter what size of business you have. It doesn't matter what type of business you have. You need to become a market engineer. You need to differentiate yourself from everybody else who's out there. You need to use interesting language. You need to um, make people want to work with you um, where they think they're going to learn something. If you can't do that, you're just going to be at best. You'll be one of the um, also rands and most likely you're going to be the um the the out of business you, you you will not succeed so that the book is peppered with with this notion of market first market engineering and then a, a um a taxonomy and a, a process to go from ideation to scale which is why i think perhaps it's resonated well uh with with entrepreneurs but to your point you know you know i, I think people do should think of themselves or should um train themselves to become market engineers. You know, without that, uh, I think you might want to, if you don't want to do that, then you shouldn't, you shouldn't be a, a, the, the CEO of a, of a startup. You should become, join maybe something, somebody else who's really good at it, um, but, but don't necessarily um, 
uh, start it yourself. And then finally, if you're if you're investing, I use these these concepts to make a decision of, of if I want to invest in the company. And I think other venture investors could also learn from this because if you're an early stage, seed stage, uh, Series A, there's very little data to go upon um, to make your decision. And you know, you, you, I would say that's probably one of the reasons why most of these things fail is that you are you you make your best guess but you're not really doing it in a way that is um there's no proxies for the metrics of a of a later stage um company so you have to create other types of proxies and those proxies are how how is this person that i'm talking to that's raising are they compelling are they are they a great storyteller are they talking about a new category a world that's going to be dramatically transformed as a result of their product or service are they able to um, quickly um, garner the um, the interest of the of the people who they're speaking with? So, I I am um, I I have come to appreciate this notion of market engineering perhaps even more with C three AI because that's what I was brought in to do was to build a new a new category and to own it. And we've applied all these principles of market engineering for the last two years. We were able to su successfully go through an IPO. Um, we were able to, to generate pretty strong growth. And um, and I and all the things that I talk about here, I've used, I, I personally have used my own, <laughs> I, I've eaten my own dog food. And, uh, and I think, so I feel very confident in these principles um, and that they work. Um, and they don't just work for uh, one person in one company. I think they're applicable across um, any type of company. Um, and, and so they're universal. I've done probably eight accelerators and incubators, right? And, and none of those did we ever talk about market engineering category design, you know? And one of the things that I really appreciate about your book is you were went into great detail on, like you said, the wording, you know, so I do it naturally now, but to outsiders, they don't understand why am I matching words like this? Why am I finding terms that they're already relating and and matching it with others um and it really is like an art to it at this point you know and so you know in this like apprenticeship age you know where we have the books and the podcast because i feel like you know when i sit in and listen to you and chris on his podcast talk right i'm learning right it's like an indirect apprenticeship but how do you you know what's the biggest takeaway you would like our early stage founders that are bootstrapping their tech startup you know They've got probably less than 100 customers, and you're now introducing this idea of market engineering on top of everything else they got to do. Like, what do they need to do? How do they start this process? Well, um, familiarize yourself with with the terms. And, you know, the book's not tough to get through. It's a couple hour read. It's not really long. Um, try to document where you think you are um, in that process. That is take the continuum from ideation to, to scale and see where you are and then measure where you are against the timetable that I define in the book. And are you really, are you growing as rapidly as um, the book decides? Um, I focus on B2B SaaS as the metrics, but the truth is um, there are, there are metrics for all sorts of business models. The value inflection points and the concepts remain the same. So, for example, I'll give you, um, if you're building a product inside a company and um, 
you know, you want it to be, you, you can talk about MVR and MVT, minimum viable repeatability, minimum viable traction. The, the, the revenue that you might be forced to hit because you're an existing company and so you're going to take advantage of your current distribution channels, et cetera, you might be able to grow much faster than a brand new startup. Um, the, um, so don't, don't, don't be literal about all the metrics. I just pulled the ones for, for the B2B SaaS community. Um, we could do one for B2C as well. I just don't, I just haven't had time. Maybe I'll go back and, and, you know, add that to the book, but, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you need to have this because it's it's kind of like when you show up to a shopping mall and you go up to that directory and it says you are here and it, it lets you kind of balance. Well, what do I need to do? This is a way for you to find your center and figure out, OK, I should have done these things. I need to actually regress. I need to go back and, and solve these these problems around product, revenue, team and systems before we try to move forward. Um, and, and then also have your teammates, the people who are part of your company, have them read the book so they have the same language as well. I think once you do that, um, you'll find that the meetings that you have are, it, it just, it, it's, it's sort of eye-opening because then when I say MVR, everyone knows exactly what that is. Or if I say, you know, MVT or IPR or, minim, or MVC, suddenly because we're all speaking the same language, we go, well, we know that we should be focused on, you know, on product at this phase. So what are we doing here? So it defines the priorities for your company. If you absent this kind of a, of a um, roadmap for you and your team, um, each of you is going to have an opinion. They could be right, you know, your one opinion or the other, but you're going to argue in a way that probably comes down to, well, I'm the CEO and I'm making the decision and we're, we're going to do X or Y. Um, I think that's counterproductive. I think, yes, you could be the CEO and yes, you, you need to make the final call, but I think you should have your, the, the wisdom of your team to, to insert their concepts into it and to use this framework as a way to have the conversation without, you know, poking each other in the chest. So that, that's why I think it's worth spending the time, not spending the time, not doing this. Well, we already know what the results are. 85% of you will fail at least. If it's a consumer, 95% will fail. So what do you really have to lose here? Um, you know, what you have to lose is losing. <laughs> so I think um, it's worthy of this. And, you know, my, um, my good, my good uh, former partner, Jeffrey Moore, who wrote Crossing the Chasm, uh, et cetera, he, he would say um, the ability for the, for the team to communicate is probably one of the, the single most important thing, especially in these days, because in the early days, any missteps could be fatal. You know, and so the team needs to be the team. Um, it, it can't just be one woman, one guy uh, making all these decisions independently and then, and then just kind of barking orders um, to everyone else. Number two, um, you, need, you need some kind of roadmap to help you. It's like a, you know, it's like having an outside consultant come in and they're not, they're not um, biased in, in other than they want to help you. And, uh, and they'll, t they'll give you the good and the bad and the ugly. And so this is a way of you determining what the good and the bad, and the ugly are, and to kind of help, you know, help you with it. You know, if I decide to go back to, to, to do anything or work, um, I think I would spend, I, I'll probably spend time using this framework, uh, maybe even modifying it, uh, teaching it. Um, again, I like teaching it at these, at these universities. Um, but I would argue the universities should be teach. I mean, they should, they should adopt this. Babson college built a whole course 
um, around this. It was quite effective. Uh, many of the products those kids um, developed are doing well um, in, and uh, since they went on and graduated. So I, I, I have a lot of confidence in, the, in the, the framework. I have a lot of confidence because, not because I came up with it. I actually didn't. All I did was observe what was going on. And I just put names, I put labels on them. And then I just decided to expose the, uh, what all this stuff is because of, of, as I started out in our conversation, um, I just grew weary of venture capitalists, not really telling the truth, uh, to entrepreneurs about their, about their companies. Yeah, no, well, I'm again, as a, I'm not that young, I'm like 34, but I appreciate when people like yourself take time to kind of write these books and put out the thought leadership, because it really does help prepare the kind of next generation to, 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 you know, apply this knowledge currently, because without books like this, you know, I might as well be talking into the wind, you know, <laughs> but uh, at least it's a, it's a good, it's a good point um, to have. So as we close out here, any final words or remarks you would like to leave to our audience of veteran entrepreneurs that are in the fight, in the hustle, um, or trying to get that, trying to achieve uh, success and get past that traction gap? Um, I, I don't think it's, the advice I have is probably the same, you know, when you enter basic training, you know, you, you know be open to new ideas, new concepts, um, be prepared to work your ass off. It is, this is hard stuff, you know, in order to go through a learning process, you know, and obviously in the military, it's both physical and mental. Um, it's also physical and mental in, in corporate stress, worried about your finances, worried about, you know, you're working long hours, et cetera. Um, my, my advice is to, um, you know, remind yourself of what the North Star is. What are you, what are you, what's your real objective here? And um, if it's purely to make money, there's other ways to make money, you know, so this may not be the best way to do it. Um, not all of these things end up where people make a, ton, a lot of money from them. Um, so if that's your only objective, I, I would say, maybe look to do something else in a different way. But if you're, if you are motivated to build something new, to, to um, employ people, to solve problems for humanity, to, um, yeah, to, I'd say to, I don't know about change the world per se, but it is certainly changed a few people's worlds. And I, and keep that in mind because these startups are, um, uh, are, are not for the faint of heart. They, they do take a lot of energy, time, et cetera. And just make sure that you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, you know, I, I've found a lot of people want to do it because they think that there's a, a pot of gold at the end. And that certainly happens for a very, very, I mean, people win the lottery too. So, but not a lot of them. <laughs> so I, I'd say that, that your, your challenge here is to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, and make sure that if you're feeling spiritually, physically down that, that this isn't for you, then then don't be afraid to say, you know, you're not quitting. You're deciding this this isn't something that I think is going to work. I'm being smart and I'm going to change my I'm going to change my trajectory to something else where I can win. And uh, and don't be afraid to, to call it when you see it. That's great advice. Bruce, how can we as a community support you on this next phase of your retirement journey? You know, is there any way, you know, let our, let our community know, cause we're here. So if I am, um, if next year, I, I'm sure there will come a point cause I've tried retiring before. Um, they, uh, there'll come a point when I go, okay, I'm, I'm done, you know, tinkering around on the car. I'm done, you know, w with whatever I'm doing. I want to re-engage. 
Um, I suspect it's going to be around this traction gap framework. And I would love the opportunity to come back on if I have a, a business around it and explain to, to the community what that business is and, uh, and perhaps, you know, uh, engage with them and with you. Absolutely. This platform is always available to you. If you ever say, hey, Mike, I just want to teach some stuff. Let me know. We'll get you scheduled. Um, and again, you know, this is the power of these these media platforms. It lets our community know that they're not out there alone, that they have people that are pouring into them. And uh, we would happily make this available to you whenever you like. And for our listeners, I'll be sure to include the show notes to the book. And I will also write a, a quick summary of it as well in the newsletter that I sent out for this podcast. So uh, it's exciting time. I'm a Super glad to have you on here. You know, you're on my hit list. <laughs> I've been following you on LinkedIn. And I finally got the confidence. Just reach out. But uh, I couldn't be more happy with having you on today. So thank you again, Bruce. You bet, Mike. All the best. So for all our listeners out there, if you haven't done so, do me a favor and go ahead and subscribe to the Transition Podcast and newsletter on Substack at the link below. I release a newsletter every Tuesday and a podcast every Thursday. So be sure to leave a comment about each episode if you like. And if you have any questions about your own venture, be sure to post that as well. I'm always looking for content and I would love to learn what you all are struggling with in your own ventures so I can create some content for it on this platform. If you haven't got plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem yet, make sure you visit www.bunkerlabs.org and select the city nearest to you. Sign up for that local newsletter and attend one of our networking events. It's that simple. From there, get connected at Bunker Online, where you can learn about our many different programs to support your entrepreneurial journey. We have programs that will take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to grow alongside other founders and CEOs. Register today by clicking connect at bunkerlabs.org. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. <laughs>